So if you remember from last time, we're just going to dive in here. Persia has conquered Babylon. Babylon had, prior to that, conquered Israel and carted off not all the Israelites, but many of, of the Jews to Babylon. And now Persia comes in and crushes Babylon. And they have a different style of rule. So Babylon was like, you will do whatever we say. We're going to destroy you. We're going to crush you into dust. Persia's like, you can, you can kind of like, we're going to invite you to go back to Israel and be Jews there. And you can have your own religion there. And uh, as long as you pay us taxes and we get along well and we can do business in your country, we, we kind of like, we own, the, the government is us, okay? And Ezra, we talked about, he leads the first wave of Jews back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And I told you last week that uh, we have to keep in mind that some Jews stay in Babylon for various reasons. They're probably like, some of them are probably like, why go all the way back, right? Like, why go all the way back? Months and months of travel, maybe weeks at the top end, um, to get all the way back there and then rebuild the temple. When we say rebuild the temple, we just say it like, yeah, rebuild the temple, right? That's a lot of work. There are no construction crews. There are no big dump trucks. There are no bulldozers. There's nothing like that, right? It's all by hand. And they're probably like, you want me to do what? You want me to go back and rebuild? Why? You know? But they also, there were many Jews who were like, I think I need to stay here because I've seen God doing some really good things in my neighborhood. I've seen God doing some really good things in my city. And uh, I, I think God's calling me to stay here and do some good work and share who God is with these people that we've been with for a long time. And I can get behind that. Can you get behind that? Yeah, that's what we're all about. And so there was probably some people who, who stayed, there were a bunch that actually stayed there, and that's the story of Esther. Her, her, her uncle and her, Mordecai, and a bunch of other Jews are in that group that stayed there, okay? So they were devout Jews and they could serve God well by staying in Babylon. Around the same time, we have this guy named Nehemiah, and he's the main central story of what, who, the fi main central figure of the story we're in today. And honestly, I don't like him because he's this guy. He's like he's just brat. I mean, I do like him. We like we like the big, you know, the quarterback type guy, the general type guy in certain situations, right? We like it in the movie when someone takes charge and is like, yeah. In your face, do it now, you know? And he's going around and like, look, if you don't, if you've been, he goes around to the people who have stayed, there were a bunch of Jews who actually stayed in Jerusalem who didn't get carted off to Babylon. And he's like, you guys are sellouts. You're sellouts. You, you've been sitting here in your, in, you didn't get carted off into slavery. But when I come back and see you here, you're just messing around. You're not, you're not really following God. And so he'd go up to the guys and he'd be like, Say, what? You're living like that? And he'd take him by the beard uh, and rip it like that. This is a, there's, there's scriptures that say this, that this is what he would do. All right? So I kind of like him, but you don't, like, if you had a leader like that all the time, like, you need a leader like that for specific times. But it, this is that specific time. Does that make sense? But you don't want that kind of leader to kind of be your leader the rest of the time, like, all the time. At least I wouldn't. So Nehemiah is actually, it's really interesting that he is that guy because before he leaves Babylon, the text tells us, and we'll read this today, that he was the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. So think back to Joseph, who's in prison, you know? 
down, down in Egypt, way back in that story. And the, he, he, has, he interprets the dream of the, cup, the cupbearer, right? But what's the cupbearer's job? To taste everything, to make sure it's not poison because somebody's trying to assassinate the king through something like that, right? Or even just like, what if he gets sick? What if it's bad or something like that? So he's kind of the guinea pig that'll die first from the poison, Nehemiah is, instead of the king. So it's really an anxiety-producing job. But the kicker is, is, that, is if everything goes well, you eat like a king, like literally, right? So that's who Nehemiah is. And now we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 1. And we see in the first few verses, Nehemiah's brother has been back to Israel. And he comes back to Babylon. Uh, and his name is Hanani. He comes to visit him. And, he, and he, if you pick it up in verse 3, it says this. This is from Nehemiah's perspective. They said to me, those who survived the exile, those are the ones who didn't get taken into, into captivity in Babylon, the ones who are back there in Jerusalem, those who survived uh, the exile are, are back in the province and are, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. By the way, this is all about rebuilding the wall, and I would have hated to be preaching this sermon about four years ago. <laughs> you get my drift. This is just like, this is not that, okay? So whatever this connection is between the people of God and the walls, what this text tells us is there's this connection between their disgrace and the state of the walls of Jerusalem. The wall is down, and the, because of that, the Jewish people have no dignity. They have no honor. And then it says this, from Nehemiah's perspective, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. So he's never, like, he's never even been there. But he's a Jewish person in captivity uh, through the Babylonian Empire, now in the Persian Empire. And I love this statement that he, said, he heard these things and he sat down and he wept because it tells us that he cares to the point where he, he wants to take responsibility for what's going on. He doesn't look around and say, who's, who's going who's gonna to step up? Who, anybody else going to step up? He doesn't skip a beat. He never thinks it's someone else's responsibility to restore God's name. And that's an important point for us to consider because how many, I know I've done this, you don't have to raise your hand here, but how many times do we think it's someone else's responsibility? I'm just like, think about the chores in your house. <laughs> all, that's all, all, all the wives were like, mm -hmm. yeah. So how many times do we think it's somebody else's responsibility to show up for God? It's someone else's responsibility to do the work. It's someone else's responsibility to be a servant. It's someone else's responsibility to put themselves out there, to risk something. I got other things to do. I'm too busy. Nehemiah doesn't hesitate. He is moved deeply for God's reputation. God's reputation. And then it says this, end of verse 4, after he talks about weeping. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands 
decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, if you think back to why God scattered his people, when we were examining the prophet Ezekiel uh, just after the new year, it was, it was because in, in Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to scatter you because I need you to honor my great name, and you're not doing it. And it says here why God brings them back to Jerusalem. He says, if you obey my commands, then I'll bring you back, I'll gather you back to bring honor to my great name. And there's this clear implication here for us, for all Christians everywhere, everyone in this room, everyone watching online, the clear implication is this. Why does God put us here in this place, in this time, on mission in West Seattle? Why does he do that? Why has he done that? You might, you might be like, wait, you're saying I'm here on mission in West Seattle? Yeah, if you haven't realized that yet, yes. That's what church is. We take care of each other, we love others, and our mission is to love others and bring them to know the love of God. He has placed us here. Why? For his great name. To bring glory and honor to his great name. What are we doing when we don't come together to worship him? We are not honoring his great name. And when we don't come together, and I, and I get it, today's a snow day for those of you who are watching online. Uh, it's a snow day. I get that. Good job watching online, and we know you'll be here next week and that kind of thing. And there's people who are watching us. I mean, you could all t come up here and turn around and wave. There's people watching us all over the world, actually, every week. We know this uh, from our live stream. There's people watching from all over the place. Um, but we're telling a different story about God if we don't make it a priority to come gather together and worship him. He wants us to tell the story of his great name, and one way we do that is by gathering together to worship him. And it matters. It matters. It matters a lot. And it stirs Nehemiah. The wall has to be rebuilt, not to protect the people, first and foremost, but because of what? God's great name. It's his city. It's where he dwells. And so Nehemiah has this, it's this unrelenting, never say die, just this attitude with a singular focus. This is who he is. So in every sermon, I don't know how many of you have heard a lot of sermons about Nehemiah, but every one that I've heard about Nehemiah, the sermon is always about leadership. Because he is a good leader in crisis times, but I told you before, he's probably not the best leader for every situation. There is no leader who's the best leader for every situation, right? But, but he's always yelling in people's faces, and I don't know how much I could take of that. But every once in a while, when we're trying to build stuff up as a people, as a church, as a, as a, as a group of people who follow the way of Jesus, when we're starting new ministries and we're calling for more backup, like in our youth and children's ministries, because they're growing, we're calling for more backup. 
things are, we're, when we're doing new stuff, when we're experimenting as a church, and it's a bit scary because we don't always know how it'll turn out or what God's going to ask of us. And sometimes it may seem exhausting. Is that the right word? Like, you don't want to start, you don't want to jump in because you're like, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> you know? It may seem exhausting. Like, I've worked out, you want me to come for three hours and work with youth, you know, on a Tuesday night? Yeah. We made dinner for you. We, put, we got rid of that obstacle. Like, you just show up, have dinner, be present with youth and care for them. But we go, that sounds exhausting. It's at those times that we need to go back and read Nehemiah. It's good for us to go back and look at Nehemiah and remember that we do what we do as Christians, not to build up our own empires, not to, not to make our own story about us more significant. We do it for God's great name. We do it for his great name. So let's read on. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. So here's what he does. He says, King, <laughs> I understand that my job is very significant to you. If you don't do this job right, you could die. But you are not important enough to me to want to stay here. So there. <laughs> you know? I want to go home and build this wall. How do you think that made the most powerful man in the world at that time feel? <laughs> he just, so I can imagine this prayer that, that this prayer that he's praying here in verse 10 to God. Lord, I'm going to ask, go, I'm going to go ask this of the king. And if it backfires, it could go really bad for me. It could go really bad for me. But God grants him favor and the king sends him home. And so Nehemiah gets home. He gets back to Jerusalem and he makes some friends. He's got these buddies and they walk around the city at night. He takes them like on a little field trip. He's like, yo, let's go cruise at night. And the text says he's the only guy with a horse. Like, nobody else has a horse. So he's up on the horse, and they're all like, they're all like, you know, Monty Python on the Holy Grail, you know, behind him type of thing. And they're going around the city at night, and they see that the wall is in ruins. Remember, he's come, he's asked the king of, of Persia, can I go back and do this and rebuild the wall? And this is the really interesting thing. He pulls this not-so-subtle bait-and-switch. He wants these guys to buy into his plan to rebuild the wall. And he says, guys, I got a great idea as they're out there in the middle of the night and it's all in ruins, let's rebuild the wall. Let's do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Even though he acts like this, this was this spontaneous idea, we know that the whole reason that he walked halfway around the world was to do this. He had one reason to come back. One focus to come back all along to restore the greatness of God's name by rebuilding this wall, getting things back on track. So he starts to build, and word starts getting around amongst all the tribes of remaining Jews, who the ones who, were, who survived the exile, is the way the text puts it, the ones who stayed there in Israel and Judah, who never left. They have now intermingled. That's a fancy word for they got married to these other tribes that they used to fight with, right? 
And, they begin, and these tribes, the people who are there, they, they start to get mad at what Nehemiah is doing. And just an aside here for a moment, these Jews that were left in Israel and Judah, the ones who intermarried, their descendants are later called Samaritans. These are the ones who came before, and their descendants are, in the New Testament are called Samaritans. Okay? So just keep that in your theological back pocket for later. Because this starts with Nehemiah calling these people who have intermarried, he calls them sellouts. He keeps going around calling them, you guys are sellouts. You haven't honored God by the way you're living. And so this is why by the time you get to the, the, the stories of Jesus, Samaritans are like these second-class citizens to most of the Jews, and they treat them horribly. And they would even like, you know, the way my Bible professor used to say it to me was, it would be like... Um, It'd be like if you were down in, in uh, Judah and you wanted to go up to Israel, you know, or the other way around, and there was this whole area that was uh, populated with Samaritans. It would be like, it'd be like holy people are in Washington and holy people are down in California, and we won't even go through Oregon to go visit our family down there. We just go all the way around. That's how they treated the Samaritans. So these specific guys... They really don't like Nehemiah's rebuilding project. And you can pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 4 if you read that. I'm going to summarize it for you here. But one of them's name is Sanballat, and he is the head of the Samaritan army. And Tobias is an Ammonite. That's one of the tribes we looked at in our talk about Ruth. Uh, God specifically said, don't intermarry with the Moabites and the Ammonites. Don't do it. And all the people that are... Um, giving the nation of Israel trouble during this time period, they are all connected to these earlier stories that we've covered and uh, the interactions that, that are in Israel's past. So Nehemiah recognizes that these guys don't like it and the people become afraid. And he says, we're not going halfway anymore. We're not going to go halfway like all you guys out there who are sellouts. We are going to obey God. We're going to build this thing. He's basically like, he's basically like this. How many of you guys remember this clip from Forrest Gump? I don't know if that will show up here or not. But, yeah, you remember this? Where he's like, yes, Jill Sargent! Yes, Jill Sargent! That's Nehemiah. Yes, Jill Sargent! There's a lot of other words in there. That's why there's no audio. Okay? So, he's like, nothing is halfway Nothing is halfway for Nehemiah. He is Forrest Gump's drill sergeant in the army. So Sambala and Tobias are suspicious and upset. And this, just, this is just speculation here, but I think they're suspicious and upset. And they're starting to get afraid because I think they remember that their people groups that they came from in, in earlier history, they were on the losing side when Israel was unified and obeying God. These other guys lost when Israel was unified in obeying God, these other guys lost. And so Sambala and Tobias, they start talking a bunch of schmack. They're basically like, dude, they're like, you guys can keep working on that wall if you want, but anytime you stop, we're just going to come in and ruin what you worked on all day. It's easier to tear it down than to build it up. We can come in there and tell you anytime we want to, who's the boss around here? That's the way they act, okay? And eventually, they start to threaten to attack and the Israelites get scared, but Nehemiah, he's this leader. He's like Forrest Gump's drill sergeant. He's like, nah, you're going you're gonna to have, you're gonna have uh, your trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's how we're going to build this wall. And for all of you who are working on you're going to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, and we're going to have some guys standing guard right behind you as well. Build this wall. Get it done. 
We're not going to stop for anything. So Nehemiah is this guy you see over and over. He has got one singular focus, and it's God's mission for him. And he has this just awesome conviction. How many of you guys love stories of conviction? Here's one of my favorites. This is from Rudy. How many of you guys have seen Rudy? It's just, it's based on the true story of Rudy Rittiger. He wants to play for Notre Dame, and he suffers setback after setback after setback and he just keeps going and he wrestles with self-doubt and depression and his family is basically like give up you're never gonna make it but he never ever gives up he's not academically eligible to enroll Notre Dame even though he's dreamed to play in football there since he was a kid so he has to go to the junior Holy Cross Junior College across the street the the father from the church gets him in he pulls a few strings he has to get awesome grades and he's not a good student right? He makes it after two years, and once he get it, gets in, and he tries out for the team as a walk-on, even though the coach tells him that there's 35 scholarship players, scholarship players on the team who will never dress and who will never see time on the field. So even if you make it as a walk-on, you're like part of the team in name only. You're like, you're like 10th string, okay? way back here. After all these disappointments and challenges, he's allowed to play football in the final game. And at the time of the making of the film, no other player had been carried off the field at the time of that making of that film. No other player in Notre Dame's history had been carried off the field. I really recommend watching the movie. It's, it's great. I, I have known Christians in my time some of who have been part of this church who have given their lives because God convicted them. They've given their whole life in service. Never giving up, never stopping because God placed the conviction on their heart. And what I mean by that is that they've lived out the conviction that God has given them without reservation, without sacrifice. Some people who've grown up in this church live in closed access countries on the other side of the planet trying to tell people who've never heard the name of Jesus about Jesus. Giving up, you know, most of what we would think it would be a normal life. Like, you know, like, what's retirement? Like, they're never going to stop, you know. I love that kind of conviction. You know what? We need more of it. We need more of it. We need it right now. Christians who follow the true way of Jesus what I mean by that is not the ones that we see on TV who give the rest of us a bad name and make our job harder by acting like morons. I'm just going to say that. That what we see in the news about Christians is not who we are. It's not who we should be. It does not spread the love of Jesus. But we need Christians who live like Jesus, who love like Jesus. We've got to have a singular focus on discovering how God, God is putting the world back together. My friends, he's putting it back together. We've talked about this. If we love people well in our neighborhood, how many homes that are broken can we restore? How many marriages can we save? How many kids can we kind of adopt into our family? They don't have moms and dads who care for them. And maybe because they get adopted, their moms and dads come and they learn how to be loving moms and dads. God's putting the world back together through people who are willing to be convicted by the Holy Spirit for a singular focus to be on mission where he's put us. 
to love others and join him in the work that he's already doing. He's already doing it. He's working in people's hearts before we even open our mouth or before we even say, hey, neighbor, want to come over for dinner? Want to go out for coffee? You look like you're having a hard time. Come meet me and the guys down at the pub. Let's just have a talk. You need, some, you need a circle of friends. And it starts there, and it, and it snowballs into life-changing circumstances for people. The history of the church in Seattle, of, of churches anywhere, in a lot of places, frankly, is that churches, they, st- they start doing good stuff. I was just having this conversation this morning. Churches who did a lot of great ministry and stuff, and they do awesome things, but then it, kinda, it, kinda, it can wane for a lot of reasons. And then, and then churches can even unravel for a lot of reasons. Those, and some of the big reasons are bad things, and it makes the news, right? And rightly so. There needs to be a, a critique. And then what happens, though, is another church pops up, and does amazing things, and then it wanes and unravels or something like that. Or maybe it lasts for a long, long time, longer than you are alive. Maybe it lasts for a long time. But this cycle kind of perpetually repeats itself, and it's a fair question to ask. How do we break that cycle? How do we break that cycle? How do we as a church become a body of believers that grows close to each other and loves each other and carries each other's burdens. All the hard stuff. All the stuff we don't like to talk about. How do we do that without stopping? Because, and and I'll tell you this, from what I've seen in over 20 years of ministry, if Satan is going to do the unraveling work on churches or on Christians, if he were going to try to do that here, the main reason The main reason that it's been for centuries that he's been able to do this is not because of big, explosive, bad things that people in church do. It it goes all the way back to the time when Israel was in exile and before that. At its root, what causes churches to derail from doing great things and having a singular focus on God's mission is when we can't get along, when the church can't get along. We can't choose to love each other. We can't choose to focus on the mission and not picking one another apart. But God has told us to come together and love one another, hasn't he? He has told us to do that. That's God's agenda in the world. Love one another. And when we actually do that, the world is changed. Not just in a hypothetically kind of good idea kind of way, but in real tangible ways. My question for all of us is, are you in for that? (laughs) Are you in for that? Are you up for that? Living out tangible ways of loving others in order to change this neighborhood, your neighborhood. Put things back together again, because there's a lot of broken things in our neighborhood. And what it means is that every one of you in this room, every one of you watching online, you are going to have to be committed You're going to have to be committed, okay, for reals, (laughs) as Ivy likes to say, for reals, for really reals, you know. Um, You can't fake it. To actually love actual people, people who can actually hurt you. They can make you mad. They can hurt your feelings, and we have to choose to see past that to the mission. 
Does that make sense? Even though we have emotional baggage from being hurt in the past, it gets hard, it gets scary, but God still lays that conviction on our heart to love each other and to love others. And we don't want to lose sight of God's agenda for the church. And what I want you to understand is there's a whole lot of things that are going to get in the way of us staying focused on loving others and sharing Jesus with others so that they can share and receive the love of God as well. And our church has a lot to do. Our church has a lot to do. I think, I really truly believe that God has a much bigger picture for what he wants this church to accomplish than we could even conceive of. But it's never going to happen if we let circumstances or fear or lack of conviction get in the way. I really, I just want to see what we can do here, friends. I want to see what God can do here. When a group of people come together to be faithful, because God's mission is more important to to us than anything else, because we want to honor his great name, regardless of what it takes. Does that stir you at all? If it doesn't stir you, then we got bigger problems to deal with. But if that stirs you, I think God could be up to something here in West Seattle that hasn't ever happened before. A church that's not just a cultural place that people like to be a part of, because that's, what, that's how churches can get down. That's one of the ways they can wane. Well, this is just what we do. This is just the culture we engage in, right? We just go to church, and I just want to be there with people, but I don't really want to do anything else other than be a part of it. But what about a church of people who are on fire for God? They love him, and they know that he loves us, and that loving people well means putting aside differences and becoming a family on mission. We're on the same team for real That should stir you. I don't even want to ask this, but I kind of, I guess I will. Are you in for that? Because I want to assume that you are. But I'm going to ask, amen, yeah, are you in? It's, and here's what it means. It means it's time to stop being scared. It's time to stop being nitpicky about what you don't like or like at church or who you don't like or like at church, because that happens Because if it's a family, (laughs) what's going to happen, right? It's time to stop being fickle with when you show up to take part in the life of the church. It's time to stop disengaging and not inviting anyone to be a part of what we do here. Get on with it. That's my Nehemiah voice. My daughter would say, that's your stern voice, Dad. Get on with it. Start living the mission. That is what we're called to. And and I want to say this. One of the main things that Satan will use, the tool that he'll use against us, is not what you would think. The main one that I see him using with the highest success rate is he just wants to make you lazy. He just wants to make you lazy. He just wants to make you complacent. Because when, you know, like, you can be lazy and feel like you're doing the right thing still. It feels like I believe the right stuff. And I've said this before. Actions speak louder than words. Your faith is real when we can see it. Who cares what you believe in your head? I want to see it. You can live up here all day long in in the way you think. 
Satan wants to make us lazy. It feels like you believe the right stuff, but you're actually not doing anything. And that, too, is compromise. That's compromise. So what happens when they're done building this wall? They get everybody together, and Ezra reads from the scriptures, and they worship, and they cry, because they realize how, when it's finally, they've been living there for generations with the walls torn down, and when they complete it, they go, they cry because they're like, oh my gosh, we have so compromised in our lives. We can't believe that we let ourselves slip that far. And what Nehemiah has called them back to has been something so profound to them that they are now in tears. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they get up and they say to the people, don't cry today because today is sacred to the Lord. Go home and celebrate that you've done this because what you have accomplished is of godly proportions. Not human proportions, but godly proportions. But it takes people of conviction even when they're afraid, even when they're tempted to sit back and be lazy and take it easy, or when life makes it difficult, or when life makes it inconvenient. We've all been there. God can do amazing things with us, with West Seattle Christian Church, if we live out our conviction to be on mission with God. And that's the conversation I'd like to invite you into. If you're new with us, we have these uh, tables set up for this series because we're like, the best sermons that we preach are actually the ones we preach together where we can have a discussion and we can work on uh, the implications of what we're dealing with here in this story and in the stories of our lives together. So you can kind of be a sounding board for each other. And if you're new, we just want you to say hi and meet new people and have a good time. But it's a good conversation to have here. We love the idea, if we're being honest, we love the idea of stepping up to, to commit to the conviction to live with God on mission. We love the idea of that. But rearranging and reordering our lives so that we can be a part of that, that's a totally different thing. That's a totally different thing. And the question is, are you going to actually do that? Are you going to actually do that? Are you going to actually reorder your life to be on mission with God?